how about I read you a story? Here we go, the greatest fairy tale ever told. It's got everything. The Prince of Camelot, rubies, and magic bullets. <clears throat> a single bullet now has to account for the remaining seven wounds in Kennedy and Conley. But rather than admit to a conspiracy or investigate further, the Warren Commission chose to endorse the theory put forth by an ambitious junior counselor, Arlen Specter, one of the grossest lies ever forced on the American people. We've come to hell as the magic bullet passed here. through these men. Oh, we have the bullet. We have the bullet. It exists in the National Archives. We even have a photograph here of the bullet. I'd like to show you that bullet. This is the bullet right here. Notice the rifling grooves. It appears basically undamaged. The end is a bit squeezed, a bit of lead extruding from the end. Now, this but is the actual bullet that the Warren Commission offered as its exhibit, uh, as the bullet that passed for both the president and the governor. This bullet went through President Kennedy, hit Governor Connolly, blasted five inches out of his fifth rib, continued on to shatter his radius and embed itself in his thigh, according to the Warren Commission. It doesn't look like it's been damaged by the it, passage. It looks like a virtually perfect bullet. You know, what in God's holy name are you blathering about? Well, I'll tell you what I'm blathering about. I've got information, man. New shit has come to light. Okay, we're back, folks. Welcome to A People's History of Violence, the podcast where we go entirely too deep. Oh, wait, I don't say that anymore. Yeah, no, we're, we're at an appropriate level of depth. Yeah. Welcome to A People's History of Violence, a podcast where we do deep dives into histories, assassinations, affairs, assassinations, crime, coups, conspiracies, cover-ups, terrors, and trials. We talk about the bad people who secretly made their own history and the history that made them. I'm your co-host, Isaac. I'm your co-host, Peter, and in the course of my life, I've come across topics that I very specifically uh, have not looked too much into. They they would have some interest for me, but I worried that I would get sucked in, I would lose my interest in other fields, I would obsessively pursue knowledge and information about them and ponder their quandaries and never come up with any solid ideas or new ideas in these fields because they've been so thoroughly picked over by people whose capacity for obsessiveness, not to mention their head start, so much greater than mine. One of those. Hi. <laughs> oh, I was gonna. I, I'm gonna oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. One of them. I should have mentioned it, but it just came to me. One of them is the U.S. Civil War. I do read about the Civil War. It does interest me, but I'm never going to know all the minutiae of your real Civil War head. And another is the JFK assassination. The great gaping abyss. Yeah, the JFK assassination is one of the bigger kind of mimetic hazards, I think, for people of a, uh, Americans in particular, of a historical bent, that they could get sucked into it. There's so many aspects and leads and mythology you can follow. And the likelihood that any one given person is going to come up with anything that actually answers anything is so remote. And the chance it will drive you up the wall is so high that I stayed away from it for a long time beyond knowing some you know, basics. But Isaac, uh, my my co-host, have, has uh, other plans. Well, Peter, for me, the JFK assassination and 
you know, pouring over material on it is actually a bit of a dynastic family hobby. Mm. Might have mentioned this to you. And we, we don't personalize this podcast too much. <laughs> so not to go too deep into family lore, but my old man who has many crazier aspects, he was a Vietnam veteran who grew totally disillusioned during the war and uh, came back with the feeling that he he had been basically made an instrument of Kellogg, Brown, and Root and corporations in the West and so on. And that gave him an entirely different cast of mind than the kind of Robert Heinlein reading guy who Mm. he went into the war at in the early 70s. And when he came out, he he met up with a friend, and that friend knew another friend who ran a bookstore. I knew this guy who ran the bookstore as Saul. Mm. Um, and Saul himself was a bit of a character. He actually wrote two different, like, hard-boiled detective fiction novels, which mm. completely flopped in the U.S., but are, mm. were apparently big in France in the mm. 1950s for a while. Mm. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the other one, but one of them was called Red Hot Murder. Mm. Saul Levinson. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why that's funny, but Red Hot Murder is funny. Honestly, Red Hot Murder looks awesome. I've never read it. It's kind of hard to find. Mm. But, you know, the front cover of it has just this, like, shadowy figure that's on fire next to an oil derrick. Ooh, yeah. that's a, that, that looks pretty... That looks, yeah, it looks, it's a nice little pop oil. Cool, yeah. Yeah. So Saul Levinson himself was connected with and uh, a friend of kind of like the king of JFK assassination research mm-hmm. for his 40, 50 years of reign, a guy named Harold Weisberg, who might be familiar to some listeners and might not. But Harold Weisberg, maybe you'll have to cut this out. I, the only way I can like kind of convey what a kind of person he was with this kind of, he was an ex-Senate investigator for a little, and, and worked for La Follette. Hmm. He father or son? Uh, son. Yeah, that yeah, sense. yeah. Was a progressive-minded guy himself. Uh, was in the OSS in World War II, hmm. like a super obsessive, like analytical guy who became a chicken farmer in Maryland. And when the JFK assassination happened, uh, began just pouring over all of the materials of the Warren Report when it was issued and accumulated like a whole basement's worth of file cabinets full of evidence and files and newspaper clippings and so on. Yeah. I mean, he was a, he was a very like prickly curmudgeonly guy, but people would be like, do you think that JFK murder will be solved? He wasn't about to go into his theory or whatever. Cause he didn't have one. He just said, no. Hmm. And he said, well, well, why do you, why do you say that Harold? You've done all this work on it. He goes, well, most murders aren't solved. Hmm. And this one's not going to get solved now. Yeah. I mean, it was however many years later. and Yeah. He was super blunt about it. He just, yeah. he just saw his job as just like throwing rocks at people's theories and especially the uh, official account. Mm-hmm. But extremely prickly guy. So that kind of brought my dad into it. So I literally grew up with just volumes of JFK assassination literature around my house. Theories batted back and forth. At one point, I was handed a post from the grassy knoll because it fell down and my dad saw it. So he picked it up and gave it to me. Oh, wow. This was in the early 90s and stuff was falling apart there. Yeah. What's there now? 
Oh, they they have like a replica fence. Oh, okay. Yeah, everything's still in the same place. The mm. the Dallas City Light wants to tear it down because they see it as bad for the image. Which yeah, yeah. They have always seen it as bad for the image. Right. But anyways, we're about to talk about uh, some new shit that's come to light. Mm. We're not going to tell you about the whole JFK assassination. Sorry, folks. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. There's regions and continents of mm. information. Yeah. Which, I'm sorry, you're only 33 episodes in. It's episode 33. You can't handle that much. No, no. Is it 32? I don't know, but you need to get more boiled. Yeah. Well, we are going to talk about one piece of evidence. Bullet. The what? magic bullet. The super Oh, bullet. yeah. The, 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 because that's, would you say that's a continent of the lore or like a, like a country or a subcontinent, the, the bullet? So, I would say it's a country. It's a country. It's yeah. not a whole continent. It, you know, you can keep going through the bullet itself is just a very simple piece of evidence, but the stories around it and like the chain of custody and the studies of that make it a very complicated thing. Yeah. But it shouldn't be. So the JFK assassination and all of its lore actually turns on a very simple question is Josiah Thompson, the existential detective, my personal detective hero. Mm says frequently was this a work of a single person who you know against all odds managed to bring a devastating amount of force to a guarded target or mm. was it a professional hit like an ambush mm. and the questions have turned for years on pieces of evidence that are part of the official narrative where the public is asked to believe a lawyer crafted story that on its face in certain aspects seems absurd mm. a bullet wound in the shoulder becomes a wound to the neck uh, a person violently thr thrust backwards by a shot from the back instead of the front. Mm. And uh, most importantly, for our purposes today, a bullet that broke through flesh and bone of two different people uh, comes out miraculously undamaged. A lead bullet. Well, a copper jacketed bullet. Okay. With the, with the jacket still on. Okay. But yeah, lead cord. Yeah, because supposedly some people use like steel bullets or whatever. I don't yeah, think that's common. That's more of a gun nerd thing. But... Yeah, to do what it needed to do, though, it has to be like a fucking depleted uranium slug. Yeah, yeah, which I mean, you know, who's to say? So, with that in mind, uh, a surprising story came out in the New York Times about a Secret Service agent who recovered a bullet after John F. Kennedy, the President of the United States, was assassinated. Uh, right after the assassination, the bullet would later be called CD1 or Warren Commission Exhibit 399. Mm. So you'll hear JFK researchers say CE399. Mm -hmm. Just know that that is this bullet that is alleged to have passed through Kennedy and Governor John Connolly mm -hmm. on the day of the assassination. Is it considered the bullet that killed Kennedy? No. Okay. That gets a little slippery, but yes. that, that bullet is supposed to have broken into three fragments. I see. The other aspect of it is the other bullet that may have come from the front broke into more fragments as it passed through the top of the skull. Right. Okay. But uh, today we'll talk about this uh, stranger bit of evidence, physical evidence, in the JFK assassination. This single, nearly unscathed, 6.5 millimeter Carcano bullet. Rifle bullet. Um, and, and I think it's a piece of evidence that reveals how strange the official case is, even before you get to the various theories of researchers who try to make sense of things. Because you have a bullet which is so clear and so visibly undeformed that it's you can see visible lands and grooves without like much magnification. Mm -hmm. 
that can be matched ballistically to the rifling lanes and grooves that are in the inside of the rifle that's connected to Lee R.B. Oswald. Right. Um, it, it seems very pat, very clear. Mm-hmm. And maybe the case is that clear, is mm-hmm. the first impression. But at the same time, that pristine, like, knockout, conclusive piece of evidence is supposed to have gone into the back of Kennedy, exited his throat, gone into the governor of Texas, John Connolly's back, exited his chest, broke through into his wrist bone before coming to a rest in the flesh of his leg mm. uh, and falling out on a stretcher that he was taken around on. Can you remind me slash the listener where Connolly was sitting vis-a-vis JFK in the car? So uh, for those of the listeners who need to be brought up to speed, so on November 22nd, 1963, JFK is riding through Dallas in this large stretch limousine i've actually seen it because yes. along with many other objects it's bizarrely outside of detroit in the floor museum yes and uh jfk is seated in the right back passenger seat and there's a whole nother row of yeah. passenger seats um right in front of jfk that are called jump seats they're actually slightly on it someone on a decline yeah and they kind of look shitty compared mm-hmm. to the seat that JFK and Jackie are on. Yeah. And so in front of JFK uh, and somewhat to his right is Connolly, okay. who's this, you know, all ass Texas mm-hmm. guy. Yeah. In the jump seat. Yes. Okay. So it would have to have gone through the back of Kennedy and then uh, towards Connolly. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people mess around like and, and argue a lot about like the angles of things. Right. And you'll see these very kind of, in my opinion, like somewhat deceptive moving graphs that show it like the bull like winding around mm-hmm. and doing loops in the air. And The magic bullet enters the president's back, headed downward at an angle of 17 degrees. It then moves upward in order to leave Kennedy's body from the front of his neck, wound number two, where it waits 1.6 seconds, presumably in midair, where it turns right, then left, Right, then left, and continues into Conley's body at the rear of his right armpit, wound number three. Some of that's nonsense, mm-hmm. um, because you can mess around with the angles enough to, to have mm-hmm. a bullet do that. But the problem is that under the magic bullet theory, the single bullet theory, the bullet goes into Kennedy, and one goes through Kennedy, mm-hmm. it, it exits him, mm-hmm. and two, it enters at like, the shoulder line or just below the shoulder yeah. line but it leaves his throat yeah so the exit is higher than the entrance even though it's going down yeah that's a real problem yes but the point is is you can ignore all of that trajectory analysis and all that geometry that you slept in through high school because this bullet is supposed to have done all of that and still be undamaged yes. unwarped that, yeah still we're unwarped. not dealing with angles here we're dealing with whether bullets could, uh, whether the deal with the bullet itself. Yeah. So in other words, it, it seemed unbelievable that a bullet could go through those two people and specifically things like the wrist bone, Conley's chest, mm-hmm. stuff like that. All of those obstacles, flesh and bone at the velocity required to penetrate both mm-hmm. of them and not have any deformations. But that's what the official president convened commission Mm-hmm. The Warren Commission, headed by for Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren at the time, that was their official case that Lee Harvey Oswald, the lone assassin, did what he 
would have had to do in order to accomplish this feat. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the problems were there at the beginning in the 1960s, the early 60s, frankly. Um, it, this account where this bullet travels through the president and Governor Connolly wasn't backed up by pretty much any of the witnesses on scene, least of all Governor Connolly himself, who said that when Kennedy was hit, he basically he turns around and he himself is hit. Mm-hmm. Remembers, he remembers it as two events. President John F. Kennedy shot, and then yeah. he turns around, looks, Connolly gets shot. Yeah. Um, and this is somewhat backed up by the only what we would call a video evidence, the film evidence on the case that was fil- right. The film taken by a textile um business owner, Abraham Zapruder, on his little home movie camera. Mm-hmm. But besides that, whether a bullet could do all that and still come out looking like it does was tested. They just ran the experiment. Edgewood Arsenal, at the behest of the presidentially convened Warren Commission, fired bullets with a man like our Carcano rifle. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was the assassination rifle. Yeah. They fired these bullets into wood, into gelatin, mm-hmm. into gelatin-fueled skulls, cotton wadding, cadavers. They were goat cadavers. Yeah. Um, goat skulls, goat wrists. Um, all of these bullets end up as they put it, grossly deformed. They're mm-hmm. smashed up. They're warped. They're any all of the bullets that went into the wrist bones of those goat cadavers and just broken. Mm-hmm. Really messed up. Uh, mm-hmm. All except for one of the sets of bullets, which is the ones they fired into, you know, soft plush cotton wadding. Right. That one actually, even that one, we can and we'll post the picture of the comparison bullets on mm-hmm. our page here. Even that one was more messed up than this bullet. Commission Exhibit 399, mm-hmm. the one that's very clearly supposed to be fired from Oswald's rifle. Yes. Uh, and this is why... Because the other ones were too messed up to conclude whether they were fired from... I mean, all of them look like bullets that could be fired yes. from Oswald's rifle. But they can't be but proven conclusively? They're just not as obvious and okay, clear. Okay. Yeah. Um, but th- this is why Josiah Thompson called this bullet... And it seems a little more cheesy now, but he called it, quote, super bullet in his mm. work on the assassination six seconds in Dallas because it's invincible, like Superman. Mm. Nothing affects it. It just bounces off and just plows through. Yeah. The uh, or, the original title, at least, of this little capsule episode that we're putting together here uh, was called The Bastard Bullet, which I love because it's borrowed from a classic and uh, very careful, respectability-minded essay uh, by a Los Angeles-based researcher in 1966, I believe, called uh, The Bastard Bullet, mm. or CE-399, The Bastard Bullet, mm-hmm. by Raymond Marcus, who was a Jewish World War II veteran and businessman who actually served as like a front for blacklisted Hollywood mm. writers. They would just write that Raymond Marcus wrote like, the screenplay, and you get a little, you get a little uh, kickback from that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he he was a long lifelong subscriber or to IF Stone's Weekly, mm. And he grew increasingly angry as, you know, a letter letter to the editor guy mm. um, when I.F. Stone said that he believed the Warren Commission's report. Interesting. And he began examining the evidence in the case more closely. And the reason he uses this term, the bastard bullet, is this bullet, CE-399, is a bullet whose stated origin, its parentage, its linkage with all of the other factual matters in the case seems so in question. Mm-hmm. that its authenticity is in question. 
it might not be a part of the events at all, but a plant coming from the outside. So a bastard to all of the other evidence in the case. And he thought, at least Raymond Marcus thought, and this was kind of a dominant theory among the researchers until about 1967, that this was a planted bit of evidence. And I would say that a lot of Kennedy obsessives today think that this is just obviously a planted bullet. It's too pads, too obvious. And then anytime you examine what they say the bullet did, it's not possible. Yeah. And presumably they go into who would have planted it, who would have had the opportunity to plant it, access to the scene, et cetera, et cetera. Oftentimes, you know, they'll they'll go through like two windows. There was a time when the um, Secret Service, sorry, the uh, Secret Service was not attending President's limousine. So maybe stuff could have been put in there. There's times when, you know, the hospital gurneys aren't attended and maybe it could have been planted in there. Maybe mm -hmm. by Jack Ruby, who spotted right. at the at the front Parkland Hospital. You go on and on with mm -hmm. these different stories. But I think most of the, the researchers, at least the serious ones, would say that there's too many open windows in which yeah. a conspirator with knowledge could have planted a bullet. Yes. I'm going to go into this from the perspective of a little bit more, I think, consistent with the evidence theory and a little bit less speculative one mm -hmm. about how this bullet got where it is, uh, but nevertheless one that still plants towards, frankly, conspiracy mm -hmm. um, and not conspiracy in you know fabricating evidence afterwards, but just conspiracy in the assassination. Mm. We should probably go into a little bit more detail into the, the New York Times story so we can know what we're, we're talking about. Yeah. Because it's pretty remarkable. Um, so this guy, Paul Landis, was a Secret Service agent. He was a very young Secret Service agent at the time. He mm -hmm. was like one of, you know, he was like a go-getter type. He he claimed he like stretched to meet the 5-8 requirement to be a Secret Service agent at the time. Mm -hmm. So this is one of his early jobs. And obviously, the Kennedy assassination is a huge Secret Service failure in many, many ways. A guy named Vince Palmyra details that a lot to great controversy. But Landis is with another more famous Secret Service agent, Clint Hill, um, on the back of the follow-up car, the follow car, standing on the, the runner boards on mm. the side of the car. You have these runner boards on each side yeah, of the yeah. car when Kennedy is shot. And Landis, unlike Clint Hill, doesn't run up to the car as he sees Kennedy shot. Clint Hill famously does, and you see him as the Secret Service agent on the Zapruder film mm -hmm. who jumps onto the car yeah. and is helping Jackie back into the seat yeah, yeah. as she's panicking and She's actually reaching and trying to get a piece of Kennedy's skull that's been blown off yeah. the top. But in the next few minutes, the car goes to Parkland Hospital and Landis gets out and he walks over to the, the presidential limousine, the other Secret Service agents having moved on to the hospital trauma ward. Mm. And he sees in the back by his account now, and it sounds like his account starting in about 2011, and he sees that there is this pristine looking bullet in the backseat, although not pristine at the time, it's bloody, but it's perfectly intact. It's in the backseat where Kennedy was. And he thinks that's an important piece of evidence. And he does what rookie cops <laughs> do, which is, okay, I better take this piece of evidence. Yeah, Seems like it's important. And then he follows the rest of the agents into the hospital. He describes the scene as complete chaos and realizing that he is just holding this piece of evidence. He does another thing that rookie cops frankly do, which is 
oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, I don't want to be a part of this case. Mm-hmm. And the Times describes it as for reasons that are even now to him unclear and hazy, he puts the bullet on a nearby stretcher. And he says, like, he thought that maybe the doctors would be able to know what to do with it. Mm. Which I could imagine a lot of people who, you know, read these things a little too close, whether they're like pro or anti-conspiracy, mm. being like, yeah, okay, sure. You don't even remember why you did it. The most important day of your life. The thing is, people just do stupid shit all the time. Yeah, A, they do it all the time. And B, think back to the most important day of your life. Like, you are almost certainly, at least if it was a hectic important day, yeah. you were almost certainly just like, you probably weren't even walking right. Like you were probably taking wrong turns places. Like you don't, things get weird. Like Like, you're under a lot of stress. I had a much less like stressful trial where there was like a a melee between two people. And I put three or four different cops on the stand. And I was like, who wrote this report? Yeah. Yeah. And they were like, I, I don't know. I don't know who wrote the report. And one of them was just like, I know I signed my name, but I know I didn't write the report. Yeah. And ultimately, none of them knew who wrote the fucking report. Yeah. Oh, the report was written contemporaneously. Yeah. Adrenaline like, isn't... Like the isn't, time step happened. Adrenaline's good for a lot of things. It's not good for, like, uh, precise knowledge of your whereabouts and your motives. Yeah. So... Basically, he puts this all aside and as just being, you know, like something, you know, stupid or, or weird that he did and that happened to him during the assassination, which was otherwise this horrible, traumatic event. Mm-hmm. He doesn't think about it again until 2014 when he reads Josiah Thompson's Six Seconds in Dallas, mm-hmm. the 1967 classic, uh, which is criminally out of print and which mm-hmm. we'll talk about later. Now, interestingly, and the importantly, if he found, as he said, the bullet in the back seat of the car where Kennedy was, where there's all the tons of blood, not on the jump seat, then that means the bullet never passed through Kennedy. It just was in him, and then it fell out. Right. It'd still be a little weird that it's that pristine, but I guess if it went just through flesh? Just or... through, like, it would, like, a little bit of flesh. Yeah. And then, then maybe it popped sense. out. But the weird part is, is that's consistent with what the FBI originally thought about the case. Because mm. the FBI, it's important to note, did not originally have a single bullet theory on the case. Mm-hmm. They thought that, that bullet never went through Kennedy and Connolly, that they were struck by separate bullets. Yeah. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about why they changed their mind on that later. But the FBI originally relied on a report by two FBI agents who were at Kennedy's autopsy, Siebert and O'Neill, who wrote a report that the FBI kept suppressed until Harold Weisberg forced it out of them in 1966. These two agents reported that during the autopsy, the doctors found a wound in Kennedy's back, again, very close to the shoulder line, that they probed with their fingers Mm. and with a, a metal probe because they couldn't find an exit wound on it. And it only went about an inch and a half deep. Um, Dr. Humes, one of the autopsy doctors, later reported to Josiah Thompson that you know he stuck his finger in it and went to like the first knuckle. Mm-hmm. Mm. Not deep. Yeah. So in other words, you have this like really shallow, unusually shallow bullet wound in the back of the president. Mm. And at least according to this Secret Service agent's account, a very undamaged bullet right in the back seat. Hmm. Uh, that, of course, is all disputed by 
the kind of the current wheeled out apologist of the war report. I should do an aside to mention Gerald Posner. For those who aren't acquainted with this whole uh, industry, Gerald Posner does a lot of uh, quoting of people that they things they didn't say mm. in his Kennedy assassination book. He made a lot of money and is still kind of brought out anytime there's a Kennedy assassination anniversary to give the official defense of the Warren Commission mm-hmm. line. Yeah. Um, What's his background? Like the, uh, he was a Wall Street lawyer before he I wrote Case Closed. Yeah. And then after that, he was a, a journalist in air quotes. Got it. Okay. Much of what he's done, actually, as far as his best-selling books, is books on like major events defending the government line. Mm. So after he wrote Case Closed, he wrote a book called, I think it was called Killing the Dream. Uh, about King. About yeah. Martin Luther King's assassination, in which he attempts to refute conspiracy theories on that. Mm-hmm. But with Case Closed, which came out after mm. Oliver Stone's JFK, actually, no, scratch that. I think it came out this, like right after JFK to try to mm. refute that movie. He ended up defending the Warren Commission's line, which it was not even at that time like the official government line, considering it came after the House Select Committee on Assassinations reinvestigated the case. Yeah. But Pazer just went back and and more or less just reheated their own or all their arguments. Well, that that's enough about the. Honestly, really strange stretch face, Mr. Posner. Mm. His face really bothers me. Right, we, we should take a trip back in the time machine, shall we? Yes. We love that. And uh, at that time, it, it seemed to me that there was very good warrant for believing in in the the plant theory of Commission Exhibit 399. I still think there is a good warrant for believing in the plant theory for 399. I think there's an alternative theory which I'm, I'm inclined to accept now, but I accept it with no great enthusiasm. There are great problems with it. What inclines me to believe that uh, 399 really was involved in the assassination is the joining of two rather atypical circumstances. 399 is a very atypical bullet. In fact, any bullet fired from Oswald's rifle at normal muzzle velocity seemed to get deformed when it hit anything. Even the ballistic comparison rounds appeared to be deformed in a, along a longitudinal axis. This bullet is just slightly squeezed along the tail. I examined it in the archives. The very atypical projectile. And given, too, the descriptions of the president's back wound that comes from uh, the uh, Bethesda autopsy surgeons on the night of the 22nd, which we find in the Siebert O'Neill report, that's a very atypical wound. Bullets simply do not penetrate uh, only one and a half or so inches into flesh. Uh, this is a very strange and peculiar uh, sort of situation. And yet, uh, as one studies the rest of the evidence surrounding this, uh, I'm, I'm uh, driven to believe that the autopsy doctors were correct. Now, if that's the case, it seemed to me the simplest thing was to simply join these two very atypical pieces of, of evidence. So, in order to really properly understand, like, why it matters that this bullet went through two people or just went a little bit in the president's back and then fell out. You have to go to the Warren Commission and why they came up with the single bullet theory in the first place. One single bullet hitting both Kennedy and Connolly. 
Exactly. Yes. Not single bullet fired at all. No, no, no. Yes. No, they believe three bullets are fired. Yes. Yeah. Whereas Thompson eventually believes four and then in the most recent book, possibly five, hmm. based on the acoustic acceptance. But anyways, so the Warren Commission brought together by the president uh, really to address the potential threat of a, well, in his account, like a communist conspiracy, like mm -hmm. Oswald had like Cuban communist backers and so on, but possibly to suppress, you know, potential potentially uh, domestic conspiracy. I mean, mm -hmm. right after the assassination, you had people who were like firing pot shots through John Birch Society. Yeah. The Warren Commission quickly ran into several problems with the FBI story saying that there were three shots fired and they all hit. The story basically being from the FBI, the first shot hits Kennedy's back, second shot hits Connolly, whoops, Miss Kennedy, still aiming, and then with the third shot, Oswald in the school book depository hits Kennedy in the head, mm -hmm. the headshot. So what's wrong with that? Because over time, the necessity of making this first shot go through both Kennedy and Connolly became a complete necessity for the Warren Commission to have a case that there was only one shooter. Because first, it left too few bullets to account for a separate bystander named James Tagg, hmm. who had the curb basically blown up in front of him by a hmm. bullet striking it, oh, and who wow. was many yards away from the presidential limousine. Hmm. At this time, I says, you know, I felt something staying me on the face as I was standing down there. I said, just staying in Walter's and he says, yes, says, you got blood on your cheek. Uh, he says, where were you standing? I says, well, down by the underpass. So we started walking down there. And when Walters got about, oh, I'd say 10 feet away, he says, look there on the curb. There was a very visible mark on the curb where a bullet had struck. In other words, there was a... There was one missed shot here in the Warren Commission's investigation, and they couldn't make it go away. Hmm. James Tagg, you know, might have just been like kind of brushed aside by, by a, as a witness, but Dallas police reporters interview him right afterwards when he has a camera on him and his face is bleeding from the curb blowing up next to him and a fragment striking him. And there's a damaged curb. And there's a damaged curb, which was never collected until the Warren Commission told the FBI, like, hey, you need to collect this curb and test it for bullet residue hmm. originally hoover just outright refused he's like that nothing nothing hit that curb hmm. that's bullshit the timing also became an issue as to whether kennedy could have been struck with a different bullet than Connolly and still had oswald as the shooter because the man liquor carcano rifle that oswald used being a old cheap world war ii surplus rifle you know, it has other virtues, but the cycling time on the bolt is not one of them. And apparently this one also had a very sticky, crappy hmm. cycle. So to reload the Manlicker Carcano rifle that Oswald had, you had to flip up the bolt, pull it back. It cycles in the new round from the magazine. You push the bolt forward and you put it back. And with Oswald's rifle, the minimum time that the FBI firearms expert could do that, Robert Frazier, was 2.3 seconds. Hmm. And that's without aiming. Yeah. The problem with that is, is that that leaves these these windows in between shots that if, if Connolly is hit too quickly, hmm. then Oswald can't be the shooter because he couldn't have possibly reloaded his rifle in time to make the shot. Hmm. So you need at least like one lucky shot in order to 
take care of all of the wounds. Yes. So the idea then being, yeah, too, too few bullets firing with, uh, if you assume it's Oswald firing three shots. Yeah. If you assume another shooter, the problems go away. Okay. But if you just, if you go with the government version, it's Oswald, he fires three times. Yes. One is a take hit. Or do they just not count the take hit? Well, the first one they count is the Kennedy hit. Yes. So one hits Kennedy, one hits Kennedy and Connolly, and then... Sorry, I, I'll, I'll be clear. So the Warren Commission believes that Kennedy is and Connolly are hit at the same time, and it's the first shot. Yes. Then the curb hit. Yes. That hits James Tank. And then and Kennedy then shot in the head. Yes. Okay. So those are the three shots officially according to the government account. And yeah. it needs to be that way because otherwise... Otherwise you have an extra bullet somehow hitting James Tank from nowhere. Yeah, you have extra... If you, Or rather, sorry, it needs to be that way for the government if they're committed to it being one shooter firing three shots. Right. How central is this single bullet theory to the Warren Commission's findings that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone? It is absolutely central, as the Commission Counsel Redlick put it, to say that they were hit by separate shots is to say that there was more than one assassin. And it has to kind of be three shots. And there can't be more than three shots fired from the, the rifle, by the way, because there's only three shells in the school book depository. Yeah, okay. From that, and from one that. live round in the chamber. That's it. Yeah, okay. That's all they've got. Got it. Okay. Um, but yeah, so the way of summing that up, I guess, is there's too many bullets. The, the tag hit was impossible to ignore. Mm -hmm. there's too little time if you say that Connolly was struck by another bullet because the time in which they have yes. Connolly struck is before Oswald can work yeah. the action on the rifle. And finally, there's this really, this is a bit more vague, but there's this tight window in which the first shot could have happened mm -hmm. because before that window, there's a live oak tree in the way. Right. Uh, obscuring Oswald's vision. But obscuring the car from Oswald. Right, exactly. Because the car goes by the oak. Yeah. Yes. But I'd like to introduce one more um, stupider reason mm -hmm. why the single bullet theory was invented. And that is what I will call prosecutor brain. In mm. prosecutor brain, you, well, if you're a less than ethical prosecutor, and in the 1960s, uh, let me just tell you, most prosecutors are, yeah. by today's standards, much less ethical. Yeah. You didn't have to turn over evidence that made the defendant look less guilty at that time. Yeah. Uh, unless you were in a federal court and people were watching. Mm -hmm. So Arlen Specter, who is the originator, the inventor of the single bullet theory, is the right. Philly district attorney, or what? Uh -huh. Worked for him. The way I see it, if I'm putting myself in Arlen Specter's brain, is he has one really good-looking bullet mm -hmm. that matches to the rifle that he can associate with Oswald through a mm -hmm. series of mail-order forms and mm -hmm. the fact that it's in the place where Oswald regularly works. Mm -hmm. So to his mind... He wants to make that bullet do as many of the criminal mm -hmm. things as possible, because mm -hmm. this is how he proves the case. If yeah. Arlen Specter was in a court, he would be making that bullet do literally all of the wounds. Mm. Interesting. So, Inspector, he 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 had a career in politics after this. Oh, yeah. No, he rode this all the way to being the senator from Pennsylvania yeah. for, like, ever. I think he even ran for president. Yeah, I think he did. He, he tried, I don't think he got very far, but yeah. There's a there's a funny passage in uh, Tom O'Neill's book Chaos mm. where he tries to bring 
evidence that like Tom O'Neill found uh, like newer evidence on the JFK assassination or like tangentially on the JFK mm-hmm. assassination. And he's like, I should bring this to my the senator from Pennsylvania's attention. And so he calls up Arlen Specter and leaves a message. And then Arlen Specter calls him back. But he like gets too nervous because he's like, should I trust Arlen Specter? Huh. The answer is no. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, should I trust Arlen Specter? And so he like makes his mom make up an excuse <laughs> to, get to get out of uh, talking to Arlen Specter. I, I, I could relate to that. I could Honestly, that. I can too. I asking my mom, man. Also, uh, good instincts, Tom. Yes. So this became the account because of the necessity of trying to have a single shooter only having three bullets and trying to make it fit all these wounds so even with all of the problems you had arl inspector be like uh yeah this is the bullet this is the bullet that went to the wrist even though it doesn't look like any of the other bullets yeah just just accept it that's yeah. the story this is what we're done we're not scientists yeah and why do i think he's not that like, oh, give a shit what happened right yeah but that was in 64 that they were doing all of that assembling and they come out with the report and then for 65 66 kind of questioned 66 you have books like harold weisberg's whitewash come out criticizing the war report using all of the evidence that was submitted in the volumes for the war report Mm -hmm. so it's kind of the ultimate by your logic right you're wrong Mm -hmm of any assassination book and you also have uh, edward j epstein's inquest mm-hmm. epstein famously switches sides later mm-hmm. but in 67 you have what i consider the the goat of kennedy assassination books the greatest the most precise the most clear-eyed the most readable the pictures are the best if you can't mm-hmm. read like me and that is six seconds in dallas by josiah Tink Thompson. Mm. Tink in little quotes, because that's his nickname, his street name. Yeah. It's Tink. Mm. Josiah Thompson was like a Navy frogman and himself grew disillusioned with U.S. Yeah, foreign like, policy when he was involved in the invasion of Lebanon. Yeah, surprisingly large amount of people uh, doing that, uh, finding out that uh, that maybe what they were sent to do was not so, not so great. Yeah. Anyway, go on. So he does the the cool late 50s early 60s thing and gets really into philosophy and becomes a philosophy professor actually at Haverford College Hmm. until hearing a report on the assassination he realizes that that something is being reported wrong because uh presence hit from the front but the shots from the back yeah he went to the old FBI office and reported it Mm -hmm. um but not to go too deep into Josiah Thompson Lord, because he also becomes disillusioned with his life as a philosopher and not being part of the real streams of the hard boiled yeah, world yeah. and goes to San Francisco and becomes a detective. Damn. And ultimately does like hundreds of homicide cases uh, on the defense side. Uh works on Patty Hearst case, mm. Oklahoma City bombing for the defense wow. team, Stephen Jones. Yeah, as you can wow. tell. Because normally you think, yeah, normally you would think a philosophy professor going off to San Francisco to become a PI. That's the beginning of like a Cone Brothers style farce. Yeah. Uh, but apparently it uh, worked out. Although I got to say, if you read his book, Gumshoe, which is also like out of print now, that there are, there are a lot of Cone Brothers farce. Oh, sure. Things that happen in there. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it wasn't all all smooth, but the fact that you could accomplish anything at all. Yeah, it's more than I would expect from most philosophy professors. Uh, the especially funny part about that. No offense to philosophy professors, history professors. <laughs> thing, but. 
The especially funny part about this whole uh, philosopher detective thing mm -hmm. is as a cover, when he was doing like tales or, or surveilling people and people were like, what are you doing here? He'd be like, oh, and he'd show him his ID from Haverford College because he was still on sabbatical uh -huh. for like years. He'd be like, oh, I'm a philosophy professor. I'm looking for, you know, something in the area. And they would just be like, oh, this, you know, yeah. head in the clouds, yeah, weirdo. Yeah, don't, don't worry about mensch. it. Yeah. Meanwhile, he was like aggressively tailing somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. But back in 67, he was working for uh, Life magazine, actually, doing an extensive reinvestigation of the case, mm -hmm. mostly based on photographic evidence from the Zapruder film, which wasn't public at the time. Mm -hmm. And as he's carrying out this investigation, he writes in six seconds that he found CE399, this magic bullet, to be a very curious bullet. He calls it a very atypical projectile. It was mm -hmm. suspiciously undeformed. And for a time, he subscribed to the theory that it, this has to be planted evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, he was called himself a fierce partisan of the plant theory. Mm. You know, He reconsidered this when he studied and found the reports, which we talked a little bit about earlier, about Kennedy's back wound, as first reported by the doctors and the FBI agents, concluding this is a very atypical weird wound. Mm -hmm. This is an airy atypical weird bullet. Mm -hmm with this weird wound in the back that only just goes about an inch and a half deep, you would expect the bullet to have caused that to be in a very odd condition. Yeah. So Thompson also found an extremely odd thing, which is that the when he was actually field investigating this case, interviewing people in Dallas in 66 and 67, that the stretcher that this bullet was found on wasn't actually Connolly's stretcher. Mm. So according to single bullet theory, this bullet went through Kennedy, went through Connolly, lodged in his leg, and as they're you know doing operations, clipping his clothing, rushing through the mm. trauma ward, the bullet falls out mm. onto a stretcher, and that's where it's seen later. It shakes loose. Yeah. The problem that Thompson found when actually reviewing the admission records and the which wards and rooms the stretchers went into mm. in the hospital is that this stretcher was almost certainly the last occupant on it wasn't Governor Connolly. It was a young African-American boy who had just been involved in a car accident. Mm, tough day to get in a car accident. Yeah. Imagine you're, you're in a car accident, you're a kid, and then all of a sudden, just out of nowhere. All these uh, armed and excited honkies. I was going to say. Oh, sorry. Go on. <laughs> atypical projectile. Yeah. Apparently been in the present. It just lands on you. Yeah. No, no, no. But yeah. Hordes of honkies. Yeah. They're, they're, and they're, they're excited. They're yeah. very excited. I'm probably going to cut that. So Thompson had a hypothesis about how this bullet looks the way it does and how it got where it got. He said the bullet, later named CE399, it struck Kennedy in the back at a reduced velocity because it was a defective charge. Mm -hmm. It was old ammunition. It had been made in the early 1950s, possibly, this is just a side note, possibly to help uh, the right-wing side of the Greek Civil War. Hmm. Or sorry, late 40s, early 50s. Possibly helped the right wing side of the Greek Civil War. Yeah. Um, and that's why the bullet's undeformed. It went out of the barrel of the rifle at not full charge. Hmm. The bullet only went in 1.5 inches, as described by the autopsy doctors and recorded by FBI agent Seabird and O'Neill, and then it fell out. And there's additional evidence to support this. The hole in Kennedy's jacket where the bullet went through has traces of 
copper around the hole mm. consistent with a copper jacket having gone through it mm -hmm. that seems good so far and frankly it's consistent with the warren commission theory yeah that hole of course is not where it should be if you want the single bullet theory to work but right. the bullet itself also has this kind of like not deformation but like a kind of scratching at the top of it that seems like it went into some clothing yeah but not too deep so thompson says maybe this fell out of kennedy's back somewhere possibly during CPR. That was suggested by a uh, forensic pathologist, Cyril Wecht, mm. who later went back on it and then ridiculed anyone who said it came out during CPR. But I think he just kind of got old and forget that he suggested that. Yeah. Anyways, it was then picked up by another person and Thompson theorized, and this was entirely speculation, he admitted it, that it might have been like a crazed, weird super mm. souvenir hunter. Yeah. And if this sounds super weird today, it's not at all weird in Dallas in 1963. No. Connolly himself had his undershirt, gory, bloody undershirt, stolen by a souvenir hunter among the hospital staff, and it was missing for a year. Yeah, people love this stuff. If there was more like contemporary assassinations in America, and if like security, personal security details hadn't gotten better, I'm sure that you would see that kind of, if anyone major got assassinated in public, you would see shit like that today. Yeah. Like, I mean, this is obviously not contemporary, but they say it when Dillinger was shot, you know, people were going up and dipping right, their right. handkerchiefs in his blood. They're like, this is history now. Yeah. I mean, nowadays people are probably taking like selfies. Yeah, selfies yeah. Oh my God, this is so tragic. I'm here with the stretcher. Yeah, I'm here with, I'm here with Dillinger. You know, uh, uh, um, there was another anecdote actually where one of these random like, Dallas orderlies or policemen go, tries to go up to Mrs. Kennedy and is like, can I take this piece of clothing that was left on the on the gurney? And you have to imagine just like how surreal that is, is that your husband's head has just been blown off and suddenly this like demented hick like comes up to you from the hospital staff and says, well, we couldn't save him. Can I keep this undershirt? Mm -hmm. I, I love voting for your husband, ma'am. I voted for him so much. And now he's dead. It's a shame. I'm very sad about it. I, only, only, only Isaac is allowed to do the accent. Yeah, because you know I'm, I'm, I'm not from there, so I'm not allowed. It would be rude. We we can use that intonation. Yes. Well, I can. Yeah, he can. I was definitely not the guy who claps and says "die" at the beginning of Oliver Stone's JFK. <laughs> Anyways, in Thompson's account, the souvenir hunter who had taken this bullet off of Kennedy's stretcher. Mm -hmm realizes what a big fucking deal this is or right. kennedy stretcher or the limousine he also says it could have been limousine. realizes what a big fucking deal this is and uh just dumps the bullet on the nearest stretcher mm -hmm. possibly during the shift change at the hospital so it would have been in the path of the exiting nurses as yeah. more nurses came in to try to reinforce yeah. the team working on Connolly. yeah and trying to save his life so this secret service agent that was profiled in the new york times paul landis in 2014, a police chief that he knew gave him a copy of Tink Thompson's 1967 book mm. with this account in it. And the New York Times doesn't go into this, having not read Tink Thompson's book themselves. But I think we can say that this is pretty obvious from the Thompson account that Landis reads this about the souvenir hunter and everything, which was ridiculed at the time in the 1960s by mm -hmm. reviewers. Mm -hmm. They love the rest of the book, but they're like, this souvenir hunter theory is just ridiculous. Mm. Landis reads this and says to himself, oh, no, oh, shit, I'm the guy who put the bullet on the stretcher. Mm -hmm. I did that. 
this thing that he's describing this random person doing, I'm the random person. Yeah. The only change in the Thompson story, the theory, is that Landis is not a souvenir hunter, uh, unlike the hospital staff member or the cop who stole Connolly's undershirt. Yeah. He's just like a rookie Secret Service guy. Yeah. The whole crime scene, obviously, was chaos, uh, Secret Service, Dallas office, Dallas, <laughs> FBI's Dallas office personnel, mm-hmm. Dallas Police Department, Dallas Sheriff's Office, and the head of hospital security, O.P. Wright, who was himself deputy chief of the Dallas Police Department at one time, were all picking through evidence, putting it down, yeah, inscribing their initials on shit, passing like it off. Physically onto the physical evidence, inscribing their initials on that was regular procedure at the time oh, wow. if you look at any of these like major kennedy assassination bullets and stuff like that with the exception of the stuff that's on the tip it scene um there's just tons of initials just like carved on Jesus. them and really badly written apps and stuff like that because like how good are you at right carving yeah letters into brass or whatever so, yeah they were taking like pen knives and whatever else they had on hand and carving their initials and stuff to try to memorialize that for court later yeah so if there is a court case, they could say, I authenticate this because I can see my initials on yeah, the bullet. Yeah. Nowadays, they would write their initials on the evidence bag. Right. And then they would seal it and they yeah. could unseal it for court. <laughs> the thing that Landis doesn't say, but it's probably true, is that he probably thought better about like being a part of the chain of custody and like the biggest murder case in the world right. in the 1960s. Yeah. And like the, the fact that he... Uh, kind of lost track of it and <laughs> yeah yeah what what were you doing picking up bullets while the president was bleeding out etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah you don't want like your memory when someone's like where were you when john F. kennedy is shot to just be like you holding the bullet being like ah. <laughs> yeah yeah and he for years he said he thought to himself i i was scared that i had done something wrong hmm. Yeah, I even think there's a very, I mean, when I say fringe, I mean more just like not even most fringe people accept it because there's no juice to it. But there is a theory that like that I've heard that uh, Kennedy was actually killed by one of his own Secret Service agents (laughs) because they heard like a car backfire. Yeah. Guy gets up with his rifle who I think you can see in the Zapruder footage that there's a Secret Service agent with a carbine, right? So uh no, you can't see a Secret Service agent with a carbine in Superior footage. Oh, there, there were there was so there were crazier phrase theories that like the driver like yeah. turns around and shoots him, which you can see is obviously not the case. Right. And then those guys are like, well, this Impruder film's fake. Okay, yeah. Even though all right, well, either way, yeah. the idea that the but, Secret but Service there, agent but oh. there was a more legitimate theory, although it's still like very, very wrong. Yeah. That you can account for the wounds to Kennedy's head uh if you believe that after someone on sixth floor fires at him that the secret service agents take out one of their uh eugene stoner made assault rifles their armalites and accidentally like falls down and fires yes that i think that was a one i heard yeah that was put out by a book called uh mortal error by a gunsmith i forgot his name yeah offhand but like it's not the right type of wound and there's no real evidence for it i assume no, that guy also subscribed to the single bullet theory. I see. Okay. So he's like basically two bullets from Oswald. Uh huh. One bullet from a Secret Service. One bullet from a Secret Service agent that that blows off Kennedy's head. Yeah, with a frangible round. But you no, know, without dealing with that on this episode, yeah, that's that's not right either. Yeah. At all. But that kind of brings us to, I think, a good stopping point until we go into into overtime for mm-hmm. our patrons yeah pay us money if you special want. listeners if you want um, 
which is like what to think of this bullet now because mm -hmm. obviously a lot of people who support the warren commission just immediately were like well paul landis is misremembering things mm -hmm. or maybe he's seeking fame but he had a lot of email exchanges where he's recounting these to people who were otherwise you know unsympathetic like clint hill mm -hmm. and frankly Something that doesn't come up in the New York Times article is Clint Hill, who was Paul Landis's partner and who denies the story, says that Paul Landis couldn't have done that, but has no like empirical reason for denying it. Right? Mm -hmm. Clint Hill started out by giving a set of interviews to a guy named Vince Palmyra, where he says one thing, and then he paired up with an author himself and he started saying something completely different, which much more was in line with the Warren Commission, but then just recently backtracked on that in a documentary put together by a local Bay Area NBC, I think it was an NBC, ABC, it was an ABC news station, where he said, okay, yeah, like, I, the shot sounded different, okay, maybe implying, like, maybe it was two shooters, mm. fine, yeah, um, at least in the last second, but with regard to this bullet, which has all kinds of documentary problems of, and chain of custody issues and blah, 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 I don't think it's a plant. Yeah. And I don't think it was a fake. I think it was involved in the assassination. Yeah, and it was I think, like a bad round that got fired by somebody. Yeah. But, and I also think that Landis's account sinks the single bullet theory, which Arlen Spector called the sine qua non of the single assassin theory. Yeah. Once and for all. Yeah. And I mean, simply put, if the bullet is sitting in the backseat, it came out of Kennedy's back from that 1.5 inch wound. Mm -hmm. If that's the case, it stopped there. It didn't go on to the next station of the car with Connolly. Right. If it didn't create Connolly's wounds, which happened like less than a second later, then that came from another rifle. Mm -hmm. And the same is true for the bullet that struck the curbside near James Take. Mm. So, no single bullet theory no single assassin, then as Josiah Thompson says, it's a professional hit. It's yeah, ambush. yeah, because regardless, uh, I feel like Hollywood has examples of, you know, single snipers taking out targets, you know, professional hitman. Style. Well, I mean, Boston's own Mark Wahlberg right. was shooter yeah. and did take out all those targets. Yeah, uh, you know, Texas's own Chris Kyle, uh, <laughs> you know, American hero. But yeah, so obviously it does happen in wars and whatnot. And I'm sure there's examples of assassinations too. But if you're going to try to uh, kill a president, uh, usually you, it seems like one guy with one crappy rifle uh, wouldn't be the, the way to go about it. I mean, that's one yeah. thing I always wondered. I'm not like a gun pedant by any stretch of the imagination. But, like, I know that by that time, I mean, by World War II, they were, like, why would he have gotten this, like, piece of shit Italian bolt-action rifle? Why wouldn't he have gotten, like, a Garand or something? Like, there were plenty of those war surplus rifles. Well, I'm sure the, the Warren Commission defender's standpoint would be, well, he couldn't afford it. And, you know, he, he wanted to shoot the president out of the force of his pro-Castro convictions right. or or need to be recognized by the world or uh -huh, uh -huh. Gerald Ford would later become a, was a congressman then and would later become vice president and then president mm -hmm. uh, theorized that he got into an argument with his wife Marina and that drove him to, to hate go, Kennedy because he was right. so jealous of him to go shoot yeah okay yeah, yeah. yeah. all right 
Fine. Me- meanwhile, Marina, I mean, it, now we're getting really off course, but meanwhile, Marina also said that like when Kennedy's son, Patrick, your very young son, Patrick died, that Lee Harvey Oswald actually was like inconsolably crying about it. Uh-huh. And that he was asked, uh, she was asked like, did he dislike Governor Collins? She's like, no, he said he voted for him. Huh. The Warren commissioners were like, wait, you're saying he shot at the man who he voted for? Mm. But yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. There's there's many problems with this case, but just focusing on this one bullet yeah. to take it back to Thompson. You know, Thompson always said that he wrote his books and did his investigation not on who did it, but what happened, because yeah. he said that you have to find out what happened before you can say mm-hmm. really who did it. Mm-hmm. You have to find out what evidence is actually evidence before yeah. you can say who's connected to that evidence. Mm-hmm. And at least with regard to CE399, I don't think that Thompson or anyone else ever expected that like someone would step forward and say, oh shit, I did that. Mm. I'm the guy that got the bullet and put it on the stretcher. Oops. Yeah, sorry guys. But this guy was in a position to do it yeah. and his account seemed very credible. Mm-hmm. Why would he come out and say it now if... It didn't happen. There's certainly no reason to. And I got to also say, you know, if, you, if you're if you about, if you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe there's a good amount of money in this. Clint Hill put out three books and built himself, I believe, a nice nest egg hmm. on the basis of not saying anything like this. Yeah. So it stands to reason that his partner, who he kept in close touch with, would not just go out totally differently and mm-hmm. and put this out there. Yeah. And so, yeah, I believe him. But the thing is, is even if he himself didn't do it, someone did because there is a bullet. If this wound is 1.5 inch deep, there's a bullet that would look like it did that wound. Mm -hmm. And it just happens that that one in a million wound and the one in the million bullet fort is right there on the stretcher. So someone put it there. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the random car accident victim. Yeah. Poor kid. So if it's not this very plausible candidate of Paul Landis, it was someone else. And frankly, Paul Landis makes for a clear, more obvious candidate than Souvenir Hunter, Mm -hmm. even though that was kind of plausible too. Right. Um, But as as red meat for our listeners, there are, Mm. of course, other reasons to doubt that there was one shooter, which we can't go into completely, but there's, you know, fragments on the x-ray of JFK's skull that showed this like clear trail coming from the direction that would be the grassy knoll mm-hmm. of like a deer hunting ground. So it's just fragments all over a place and not a solid copper jacketed ground. There's eyewitness accounts. There's acoustical evidence that can be synced up the spurter film, but not so having one. demolished one, yeah, this case, if you pull on any thread, it, it falls apart. The question is like, what can replace it? And what I like about this account of the bullet finally coming together is at least on one fragment of the case, Mm -hmm. you can see like what really happened having come together. Yes. Back wound, bullet that looks like it caused the back wound. And finally, a guy coming up in old age being like, oops, I picked up the bullet. Yeah. So unless, you know, the Rothschilds or whatever put Paul Landis up to it, you know, we, we do have a relatively solid evidence chain here yeah exactly and on that cohen brothers you know yeah of, oops i picked up the bullet yeah 
Maybe that should be the title of this episode. Yeah, yeah, it's not a bad one. <laughs> um, we'll see you next time, or in our Patreon lit patrons case, overtime. Yeah, like right now. Yeah, where you find out about more stuff. Indeed. See you next time, listeners. All right. Bye bye.